So um, we're continuing with our study through Paul's letters to the Thessalonians. Um, and we've had, of course, David and Ian's talks already. Um, David doing an introduction to the, the letters and Ian um, dealing with chapter one of First Thessalonians. So they're both on SoundCloud and YouTube to, to catch up on if, if you haven't listened to those already. Um, so for this week, we're looking at chapter two, First Thessalonians chapter two. And we're looking at it under the heading of word-based worthy living. Um, so to recap, Ian, when he took us through chapter one, um, Ian looked at the nature of the gospel and the evidence of true Christian faith and lifestyle evangelism and ministry. And to an extent, those themes are carried on within chapter two, as we'll see. Um, obviously, it follows on from chapter one, so it, it's natural to expect that. Um, but my study Bible actually divides up the passage we're going to look at into three sections. Um, the, foot, the footnotes in my Bible describe it as message, motive, and manner. And um, taking each of those at a time, message obviously refers to the gospel message. Ian was taking us through that in chapter one, and, it, and it's the message that Paul was primarily concerned with as he went about his missionary journey, um, bringing the gospel to as many people as he could. Um, motive, we'll see in chapter two that um, Paul is concerned with um, the sincerity of his desire to preach the gospel. It seems that that was under some doubt by some of the, um, the people who heard the message. Some doubted the sincerity of Paul's preaching. Um, so we'll look at the motive of Paul's desire to please God. And then finally, the manner is to do with how Paul went about his mission and how he instructed the church in Thessalonica to, um, to live, to be disciples of, of Jesus Christ and to, um, to press on in the face of opposition. So, so dealing with the practicalities of living out um, the word of God. So message, motive and manner. Given our title for today of word-based worthy living, we're going to be mainly concerned with the second and third of those. So we, um, we feel like we've dealt with the message side of it in, in chapter one. So we'll be looking at the motive and the manner in chapter two. Um, and we'll see that Paul goes to great lengths to demonstrate that his motive is solely to glorify God and to do his work. Um, that's the first half of the passage that we'll read, Paul dealing with his motive for what he's doing. And then in the second half, um, he's really praising the church in Thessalonica for the way in which they accepted the word that they heard, the word of God, and the way in which they're living it out in the face of opposition. So dealing with motive and manner in this passage. So the passage is 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verses 1 to 16. And um, I think it's worth us just taking a moment to read through the passage. So beginning at chapter 2, verse 1, 1 Thessalonians. You know, brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not without results. We had previously suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know. But with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in the face of strong opposition. For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We're not trying to please people, but God, who tests our hearts. You know we never used flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. 
We were not looking for praise from people, not from you or anyone else, even though as apostles of Christ, we could have asserted our authority. Instead, we were like young children among you. Just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and hardship. We work night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preach the gospel of God to you. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous and blameless we were among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting and urging you to live lives worthy of God, who calls you into his kingdom and glory. And we also thank God continually, because when you received the word of God, which you had heard from us, you accepted it not as a human word, but as it actually is the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own people the same things those churches suffered from the Jews, who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove us out. They displease God and are hostile to everyone in their efforts to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. In this way, they always heap up their sins to the limit. The wrath of God has come upon them at last. <clears throat> so that's our passage. And as we've said, um, it can broadly be split into, into two sections, motive and manner. So we'll begin with looking at um, Paul's emphasis on his motives. Um, it's interesting, I wondered why Paul spends so much time in this passage um, dwelling on his motives and explaining his motives. And it seems as though some, perhaps not in Thessalonica, but, but nevertheless, some people had accused Paul of being insincere, um, perhaps having an ulterior motive for the preaching that he's doing, because um, we read of Paul's missionary journey that he, he preached the gospel to any who would listen. Um, and perhaps some some were not sure of his motives for doing that. And in fact, um, we read in the letter to the Philippians that Paul wrote, um, which he wrote some years later, um, Paul actually acknowledges that there are some who would have other motives for preaching the gospel. Um, if we look at Philippians chapter one, verse 15, it says, it is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love knowing that I am put here for the defence of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. So it's clear then that um, Paul is aware that there are those who would preach the gospel from impure motives. Um, we can look at some of those motives. Perhaps some were doing it out of selfish ambition. And it does seem that in the Philippians passage, some had a sense of jealousy over Paul's prominent position. Um, some, some may have wanted to challenge that and to be in competition with Paul. And, and there are some that may have even wanted to make life difficult for Paul because he, um, Paul was in chains and he was likely under house arrest at this stage. Um, and there may have been those who wanted to make life difficult for Paul and to, to capitalise on him being imprisoned and to, to um, as we say, be in competition with him. So some would have had selfish ambition, 
some may have been um, preaching the gospel to please people. That's something we read in, um, in our passage in verse four. Um, we read that there were some who were trying to please people and to gain popularity. Then in verse five in our passage, um, Paul references that there may be some who preach the gospel out of greed, perhaps some sort of financial gain from preaching the gospel. And that's even something that we can see today, isn't it? We see um, perhaps TV channels where, where people are appealing for money in order to, um, to instill salvation on them, perhaps, or, or um, other means of, of just profiting from the gospel. We see it today in, in, in our modern times, and perhaps this was the case at the time. Um, but we read in our passages that Paul assures the church that he doesn't preach the gospel for any of these reasons, but only to please God. And he goes as far as to call God as his witness. We read in, in, in verse five, um, we never used flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. So Paul is appealing to his, um, his reputation and, and the works that he's done and the things that the church would have seen as proof that he wasn't doing his work for any of those um, selfish reasons, but he was doing it to please the Lord. Um, but having said all this, it's interesting to read the Philippians passage. Um, that last verse we read in verse 18, Philippians 1 and 18, Paul said, but what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. And that, that was an interesting verse to me. I, it kind of struck me that um, Paul was basically saying that it doesn't matter what the reason is, as long as the gospel is preached, he will rejoice. And actually, when you think about that, it's further proof that Paul's um, motives were pure and sincere because he's basically saying that um, it doesn't matter how the message is preached as long as it is preached. And the reason for that is because because Paul knows that there is more to the message than the person speaking it. Paul knows that the gospel message has in itself a power that is beyond um, what the person is saying, the, the, the preacher is saying. You might say that the message is more than the medium. Um, and it's something that Ian touched on in his talk last week. And um, we read in chapter one of First Thessalonians um, and verse five, it says, our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. So um, that together with what we've read today is, is just saying that the gospel in itself, no matter how it's preached, no matter who's preaching it, um, no matter how eloquently or otherwise it's being preached, the gospel in itself has a power to convict and to, to transform. So Paul is saying it doesn't matter how the gospel is preached as long as it is preached. Um, but nevertheless, despite having, despite what we've just said there, um, how we live confirms or contradicts what we say, as Ian said in his talk. Um, so we need to be sure that we're having the right motives because um, we don't want people to hear what we say and look at our lives and see that we're doing something else because that undermines the things that we're saying. So, yes, preach the gospel, but let's make sure that we have the right motives as well, as Paul is outlining here. <clears throat> Um, so in verse six, Paul gives some evidence for um, what he's outlined in the previous verses. We read in verses four and five of Paul saying that his motives were pure and that his motives weren't to do with self-gain or self-interest. And in verse six, we see some evidence of that um, because we read that 
he says, even though as apostles of Christ, we could have asserted our authority. So we read there that Paul was an apostle. And a definition for that means could be one sent with a special commission. Um, and so Paul was commissioned, as we know. He, Paul was, a, um, was commissioned in a miraculous way. And we read about it in Acts, Acts chapter 9, where we read about the Damascus Road experience that Paul went through. Um, and we read that he was struck with a, a blinding light and he was encountered by God in a very dramatic way. Um, but in verse 15 of Acts chapter 9, we read that God says of Paul, um, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles. And to me, as I read that um, in preparing for this, that was quite a, a stark thing to hear, to, to read that God said about Paul, because perhaps we could be in doubt of, of Paul's uh, credentials. Perhaps we could be reading the words of Paul and think, well, it's all well and good that Paul said these things and was giving this teaching to the churches, but on what authority is he doing that? And I think for me, this, this verse really answers that question. Um, we read that God said of Paul that he's his chosen instrument to proclaim his name to the Gentiles. So if we are ever in doubt of Paul's authority over the churches, then this is a verse that, that can confirm that for us um, because God himself declared Paul to be his chosen instrument. So Paul was an apostle chosen by God. And in 1 Thessalonians 2 and 6, he's saying that he could have exercised that authority if he'd have wanted to gain status or approval from people. He could have, um, he could have lorded it over them, as we might say, to, um, to do what he says because of his, um, his being an apostle, his being called by God. But he didn't do that, we read. We read in, in verse 7, it says, instead, we were like young children among you. Um, the, the sense there, it, it, it reads a little confusing, I think, but the, the senses of being gentle and uh, young children being the opposite of an authority figure. Um, the word for young children there has the sense of um, a gentleness in terms of a superior dealing kindly with someone who is inferior to them. So um, not exercising that authority, as Paul's saying, but rather being gentle and being um, being amiable and being reasonable with the people there. Um, so that's that's what we get from verse six. Paul saying that if he had wanted to to be superior or if he had wanted to um, have high status in the church, then he could have called upon his apostleship to do that. But he didn't. Instead, he chose this gentle um, humble manner that he dealt with them in. So the verses up to verse seven, as we've just read, are dealing, as we said, with Paul's motives. And we can see from what he said that his motives were pure. He wanted to please God. He wasn't interested in pleasing people in the slightest. He wanted to please God. And then from um, verse seven or verse eight, we move from the motive section to the manner section, as we outlined it at the beginning. Um, and we start to look at the way in which Paul instructs the church to behave and to, to live as disciples. Um, so in verses 7 to 12, Paul reminds the church of his conduct among them when he was with them. Um, we know that um, this letter was written after he had, he'd had to leave Thessalonica. It was likely written from Corinth, we read. Um, but he reminds them of his conduct when he was with them at the time. 
And there's further evidence of his, of his motives in case it wasn't fully clear already. Um, he reminds them to use their own memories of him. And he says in verse 10, you are witnesses and so is God of how holy, righteous and blameless we were among you who believed. So he's calling on them to remember themselves, not just to take his word for it, but to remember how he was when he was with them. Um, holy, blameless and righteous, as we read. So Paul and his companions, it was Paul, Silas and Timothy, we read in, in verse one, in chapter one, sorry. Um, Paul and his companions were living proof of the genuineness and the power of the gospel. And it's worth noting that it wasn't just a mere absence of sin. Perhaps when we read those words, holy, righteous, blameless, we think oh, they, they didn't do anything wrong. Um, and that was it. Um, but it's not just an absence of sin through sheer willpower of trying not to, to do things wrong. Um, but as we read later on, they're in pursuit of the kingdom of God. There's constantly striving to live according to the kingdom of God. Um, so this is a, an important thing, I think, that we read that they weren't striving to avoid sin or to avoid um, bad practices or anything like that. And they weren't relying on their own willpower to do that. They were, they were endlessly pursuing God, pursuing God's kingdom and pursuing God's glory. Um, a useful analogy of this, I think, to help us think about it. I, I read this recently. Um, one writer said, um, when I go to New York City, I don't have to think about not going to London or Atlanta. People don't meet me at the airport or station and exclaim over what a great thing I did in not going somewhere else. I took the steps to go to New York City and that took care of everything. So that's a kind of simple analogy really, but it helps us to, to think about it in the right way, I think, because um, perhaps sometimes we can be concerned with the things we read in the Bible that tell us not to do things or um, behavioral things that we, we know we should do and we should try to work on it in a disciplined kind of way. And that's important, of course, to, to please God. But if we're striving to to please God in everything that we do. And if we're striving to enter into the kingdom of God, and if we're striving to glorify God, then those things come organically. Those things occur naturally within us. And if the, if the gospel message is real to us, um, and we've got those pure motives that we've been thinking about as Paul had, then holiness and righteousness and blamelessness will all occur naturally within us because we're striving to be more and more like Christ who, who we're following. Um, just as an aside, as we, as we go to verse 12, we read of the kingdom and glory. And we read that Paul says, urging you to live lives worthy of God, who calls you into his kingdom and glory. Um, just to mention in passing that that's a present tense thing. That's not a future thing that, that will happen one day in the future. That's, that's something that we're striving for now, isn't it? Um, God has called us into his kingdom and we're to live in that kingdom now. As we, as we follow Christ and as we um, are transformed by the power of the gospel, that's something that will happen within our lives now. We'll be living in the kingdom of God and we'll be living, enjoying God and enjoying who he is and what he's transforming us into. So let's be thinking about pursuing the kingdom of God in this life now rather than waiting for it in, in a coming day. <clears throat> so as we move to um, verse 12, or verse 11 rather, sorry, we read, for you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting and urging you to live lives worthy of God, 
who calls you into his kingdom and glory. So we have that direct model there for us as, as believers, encouraging, comforting and urging. Um, it's perhaps especially um, aimed at church elders or church leaders, as, as Paul was um, setting up these churches and advising these churches. Um, but it's for all of us as well, isn't it? Um, we're to encourage, perhaps some of us find these things easier than, easier than others. Perhaps some of us are encouragers naturally. We can spot things that people do well and we can encourage people in those things. Perhaps some of us, some of us are comforters and are able to draw alongside people and to help them in, in difficult times. And perhaps some of us are um, able to urge people on and to encourage them to, to take that next step perhaps in discipleship or um, to keep on keeping on as we, we sometimes say. But there are things for all of us to be thinking of and for, to be trying to do for each other as we're um, as a church, a local church in Manchester and as a wider church. Um, we're to be looking for those opportunities to encourage and to comfort and to urge. Um, and there's that reminder to do it all with the gentleness and care of a father as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting and urging. Um, so not being harsh with one another, but to um, to do those things in a gentle manner, as we've been thinking, Paul has, has been doing for the church in Thessalonica. <clears throat> then we're encouraged to live lives worthy of God. Um, and Paul, having done this himself as an example to the church, urges them to do the same. So the final section that we move into is um, verses 13 to 16. And um, this section deals with the power of the word of God, which is at work in the church in Thessalonica. And as we mentioned at the start, Paul is expressing his joy because the church are following his example and they are being transformed by the gospel. And we read importantly of this concept of being imitators. Um, and so these verses really link strongly to our title of word-based, worthy living. Because um, we read that the church is um, imitating Paul and imitating the other churches. And in doing both those things, they're imitating Christ. Um, so how did this work? How did they do this? What exactly caused such a transformation in these Thessalonians? Because we need to remember, as, we, um, as David took us through in our introduction, um, many or perhaps most of the, the members of the church in Thessalonica were not Jews. Um, David told us about the city of Thessalonica being cosmopolitan and a melting pot for lots of different cultures. And we know that there were temples to Caesar and, and to many other deities. So it wasn't the same as when the Jews heard the message. This was a, a totally different kind of faith that these people were used to. So it was a complete change of direction for them to turn from these, these other gods to serving God and to accepting the message of Jesus. So, so it makes you wonder how, how it worked and how this transformation occurred. Um, well, Paul is quick to make the point that they accepted the word of God as it actually is, in contrast to accepting it as a human word. We read in verse 13, you accepted it not as a human word, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. So the, the temptation for these people would have been 
to listen to what they were told, to listen to the word, and then to maybe try and um, come to a compromise with what they were currently doing in their own lives and to fit the word in around the things that they were doing. But they didn't do that. We know that they didn't change the word, but rather the word changed them. So it wasn't that they adapted what they heard to fit. They changed their lives. They made the changes they had to do to fit in with what God wanted of them. Um, again, as Ian touched on in his talk, the, the gospel is of God and it has power within itself to change lives. So if we want it to work within us, we must be prepared to be discomforted by it. Um, we must be prepared to allow it to change us in ways that perhaps we don't want to be changed in. Perhaps we've, we're in habits or we're, we're comfortable in certain things. And actually God is calling us to challenge those things and to change those things. And I think the encouragement here is that if these people in Thessalonica could make such drastic changes because of the gospel, then we should be challenged to do the same. So as we've, we've thought, um, the people in the church in Thessalonica became imitators. Um, imitators of who or what? Well, we read that they were imitators of Paul's example. In, um, in verse 6 of chapter 1, Paul says, You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. So we read that they, they were imitators of Paul, but Paul himself is described in 1 Corinthians 11 verse 1 as an imitator of Christ. Um, the verse says, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. So it's an important point to make that whilst they were imitating Paul, and we'll see that they imitated the churches around them as well, it all goes back to Christ. Ultimately, everyone is imitating Christ who's, who's following him and wants to be a believer in him. Um, so they were imitators of Paul, and we also read that they were imitators of the churches in Judea. We read in verse 14, you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own people the same things those churches suffered from the Jews. <clears throat> so, again, this, this, Im this imitation idea comes back, and, and we see that it says that the church in Judea, the churches in Judea are in Christ Jesus. So again, we're going back to Christ Jesus every time. And it just, I think, underlines as well the importance of a network of united churches. And it's clear that it was um, God's design that these churches, which were scattered across a large geographical area, were all interlinked, were all imitating each other and encouraging each other. Um, and I think this is this is the pattern that that God wanted to be followed. Um, so we read that the, the Thessalonian church imitated Paul and imitated these other churches. And we, we read that they actually became a model themselves to the other churches. We read in chapter one, verse seven. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. So. We read that imitation was key for all the churches and through their imitation of, of Christ and of, of Paul and of the other churches, the Thessalonians became a model for, the, for other churches as well. Um, perhaps we can apply that to ourselves. We can think of, of mentors that each of, each of us has. Um, perhaps people when we were um, younger in the faith, 
or perhaps even now we, we can think of people who we we look at and we think they're a great example of, of Christ and of a disciple of Christ. Um, and the question really is, are we the same to other people? As Ian was saying um, in his talk, we're all influencers for good or for bad. Um, and we need to be examining whether our example to others is a good one or a bad one. Um, and if it's a good one, and if we're following the example of the church in Thessalonica, then others will imitate us and others will be influenced by us. Um, <clears throat> but as we say, it always has to come back to Christ. And we read um, in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 12, um, Paul again says, one of you says, I follow Paul, another, I follow Apollos, another, I follow Cephas, still another, I follow Christ. And then he asks the question in the next verse, is Christ divided? And we know the answer is no. And we know that we always have to be going back to Christ. Yes, we are to imitate each other and to imitate those who, who are an example of Christ. But ultimately, we're to be following Christ. So finally, then, um, we come to verses 15 and 16. And we read a little about how the Thessalonians had suffered at the hands of their own people. Um, we read from verse 14, you suffered from your own people the same things those churches suffered from the Jews who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove us out. <clears throat> so I think we can say that Paul includes this as a reassurance that the um, disciples were going along the right path. Perhaps there were some who may have doubted the gospel. They, they encountered this resistance or this opposition from the people around them. And perhaps they started to doubt things and the backlash from their own people might have made them question whether this was really the way to go. And um, the most powerful response to that that Paul can give is that Christ himself was was crucified by the Jews. Um, so even in this time, in, in the first century, the gospel was countercultural and it led to backlash and to hostility and to um, suffering on the, on the part of those who were, were preaching it. So it was countercultural then, and it is today as well. The concept of free, unmerited grace, something that we don't deserve, is alien to us and it's alien to um, mankind as a whole. And it's offensive to many as well. The idea that we, we need salvation. The idea that it's not something we can attain ourselves through good works and doubtless we'll encounter opposition if we dare to share that message as, as Paul did and as the early churches did. But um, in terms of suffering, Paul had been there as had several of the churches at this time already. But the reason that they persevered was because of the pure motives that, that Paul had talked about and because the word of God was alive in them. Um, and so Paul wasn't deterred from his preaching because he knew the importance of what he was preaching. And as we said, there was power within the gospel that was working within him. Um, just returning once again to that verse in um, chapter one, verse five. Our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. And um, that perhaps is a summary for, for where Paul got this seeming ability to keep on in the face of overwhelming opposition. Um, it's because he had this gospel within him that had the power of the Holy Spirit and he had that deep conviction to 
So the challenge, of course, is for us, has the gospel taken hold of us in this way? Do we live in such a way that the power of the gospel is evident in our lives? And do we live listening to the Holy Spirit every every day, every moment for, um, for that power that Paul knew? So that takes us through um, the passage. We've looked at um, Paul's motives and um, the manner in which the church of Thessalonica were to live um, as disciples of, of Christ Jesus. So Paul explained that his motives for preaching the gospel were pure and he did it solely to glorify God. And perhaps we can examine our own motives in that. Do we have that same motive, that drive to share the message of the gospel with others because of um, our love for God and because of our love for what he's done for us? And then Paul gives his own word-based living as evidence for his good motives. Um, and then we can ask ourselves, is the word alive and well in us? Could people look at our, our lives and see that it marries up with this idea of um, word-based living as we've been thinking? And then finally, Paul urges the church and us as disciples to persevere in the face of opposition because, the power, because of the power of the gospel within us and because of the Holy Spirit and that deep conviction that we've been thinking about. We must expect opposition as we preach the gospel because it's something that's countercultural and, and offensive as we thought, but we're to do it despite that and we're to do it for the glory of God. Thanks very much. <laughs>